0: Welcome to another episode of The Leadership Connection, where industry expert Doug Plucknett interviews global leaders from the maintenance and reliability industry. Each week, new leaders will join us with insights and tips to help you grow in your career, and they'll share a good story or two while they're at it as well. The Leadership Connection is produced by the industry's leading networking and learning community, Mobius Connect. Doug,
1: over to you. Hello and welcome to the Leadership Connection. Those that have been listening well, know that I usually start with good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you might be tuning in. And, and today's a great example of that because uh, I'm talking with Jason Trainer from Mobius. And uh, I happen to be in New York and it is about 530 in the afternoon, pushing evening. And uh, Jason's over in Australia, so it's very early in the morning
2: for him. I'm guessing anyway. What time is it, Jason? Well, it's not too bad. it's it's seven thirty in the morning, so it's it's not too bad. I'm not complaining. That's for sure. All right, that's coffee time for me. <laughs> <laughs> so how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good.
0: Today's podcast episode is supported by our friends at Asset Watch. Nicola Labs, the leading condition monitoring and proactive maintenance organization, has officially rebranded to AssetWatch. What makes AssetWatch special is that they not only provide the hardware and software needed to monitor your assets 24-7, but you'll also get a dedicated condition monitoring engineer who will provide you with real-time prescriptive insights on how to prevent downtime. While the company has a new name and a new look, their promise to you remains the same. Check out their new site at AssetWatch.com to learn more and to sign up for a risk-free trial today. Thanks to our friends at Asset Watch for supporting today's episode. Now back to your listening.
1: All right. So Jason is the uh, CEO and founder of Mobius Institute, and I've known him a number of years. We've met through conferences, I, gosh, probably a de- couple decades ago, the first time. And uh, in this past year, Mobius has been kind enough to... Uh, Sponsor me for a couple of these podcasts that I've been doing for him, and uh, I've really enjoyed doing the leadership connection and then uh, uh, connect conversations with Ron Moore. So, so, Jason, I'd like to thank you for your sponsorship with that. Uh, it's, it certainly is meaningful, and I know that uh, lots of people have enjoyed listening, and, and the folks that have, have actually been on have uh, gotten back to me to say, hey, thank you. That was, it was actually fun to do it. I, I plan on trying to make it fun
2: for you as well today. Well good, good, and look we um our goal is to you know help people learn and develop, and everything, and this is just fantastic. I've been so impressed with the interviews and the discussions with people, and it's yeah it's a, it's a good thing to do all right, so
1: I usually uh try to stick to a format with this, but uh in this interview since there are a couple of things that I would actually like to talk about, we'll get to those a little bit later. I really want to start with. Who is Jason? Tell us about your background, where you went to school, the companies you've worked for, the roles you've worked in, and uh, some of the great things that you've worked on in the past.
2: Well, I have had um, probably an unusual career because I've worked for myself for the majority of it. So I started with uh, an electrical and electronic engineering degree in um, Melbourne and as part of the graduation process there were a couple of companies that came to the uh to the college and uh for interviewing you know like interviewing for jobs and i got a job with one of them hewlett packard and hewlett packard way back then used to make scientific instruments you know spectrum analyzers data acquisition equipment and all of that now that's been split off to a company called agilent but um so back then and long story short I got a fantastic job as a systems engineer and the idea of systems engineer was to sort of be the interface between the salespeople and the customer to try and make the instruments work and it was a great introduction to all of this Uh, it it taught me about spectrum analyzers and I went on did a lot with vibration analysis it taught me about data acquisition but look I could really tell you a long story bottom line is I only actually worked there for two years and Then started my own company. So I was uh, What 23 when I started my first company called Argo Jason and the Argonauts anyway, and so that was all about vibration analysis data acquisition those sorts of things but so we I was involved with the vibration analysis, but also writing software um to make vibration analysis much easier. I mean we're talking a long time ago before IBM PCs, before portable data collectors, before all of those things. So it was quite a chore to perform vibration analysis. You know, you were recording it on tape, you had to play all the tapes through the analyzer, you had to manually analyze everything in pretty low resolution and all of that. So I thought it'd be great fun to try and write some software that would um well just aid in that process make comparison of spectra easier and all those sorts of things anyway so for about five years in australia um the basic idea of the company was to develop um, these products still being involved with vibration analysis and so on but um long story short at the end of that time we had a number of offers from all the likely you know condition monitoring companies mostly in the United States, and accepted an offer from a company in Seattle. And so we sold, when I say we, my wife and I, uh, we sold the technology, all the software that we'd developed, uh, sold the technology to the company in um in Seattle, and moved over there. And that was up in a beautiful place called Bainbridge Island. Um 30-minute ferry ride from Seattle. It was just fantastic. And um, um and Basically, they did a lot of Vibration Consulting, but were also developing products. So I worked there for six years, um, and that was as long as the visa would allow me to stay in the United States, so worked for six years developing products. Moved back to Australia, and actually kept doing a bit of that as a consultant, and then in 1999, uh, decided to start Mobius, Mobius Institute. Mostly because it was frustrating working on vibration analysis software and and condition monitoring tools and so on, where it always seemed like our clients weren't being given the opportunity to really learn uh, what the machines were telling them, how the machines were failing, how all the data acquisition and instrumentation worked, and all of that, so I thought, well, I'm going to turn my hand to training instead because I'd written a lot of software and uh, all those other things. I thought, well, I can simulate the machine, simulate the analyzers, and basically create a training company out of it. And so that is, you know, that was uh, over 20 years ago now. And um, we've been doing that sort of thing initially in vibration, then balancing and alignments and then, Reliability has sort of been the main focus. Well, since i main focus, we're still very much involved with vibration analysis, but anyway, since um, about 2010, it's mostly been, for me personally, the newer developments have been in the area of reliability.
1: All right, so those that know me know I've been around this industry probably right around the same time you were coming in, right? So 1999 is when I left Kodak and started out on my own and started having to do the conferences and and training and and doing RCM and and helping companies with uh, understanding what reliability was and and what they could do. And uh, having been around the vibration stuff uh, while I worked at Kodak, this was one of the the more interesting things that I tell people, I have no idea how all this stuff works. I know where it's applied, right? And so when I meet folks like yourself, that are into this, the detail of it, and, and to know the ins and out of it. Um, I'm always curious as to, uh, and you said, gee, my, I got lucky to come out of college and go to HP and, and get into stuff like this. At what point, though, along the line, were you, did you all of a sudden, did the light turn on and say, hey, wow, there's a lot to this, and there's a lot that uh, companies can gain? Where Where did that first come from?
2: Well, it's a good question. So. One day back in 1984, I was, this is when I was working for Hewlett Packard, still in my first year working for Hewlett Packard. Now I hope this person isn't listening, but so my colleague, my senior colleagues at the company one day said, you got to go downstairs. There's a fellow there named John Maury. He wants to talk to you about vibration analysis. And they sort of had this grin because they knew, that it was going to be a an interesting discussion a challenging discussion so i go down and says i meet this john Maury who is absolutely brilliant i mean what he knows about vibration analysis it's just amazing but it meant that it was like diving way into the deep end but that was probably the moment where i i thought having not known anything about it beforehand having these long discussions with him and understanding what he was trying to achieve with the measurements, trying to, you know, foresee these problems that were coming, working with customers that obviously didn't want to experience the failures. Um, But in those days, it was a case of taking a vibration analyzer, pressing the plot button and a printer, a plotter actually it was, would draw a spectrum on a piece of paper and you would hold the piece of papers, you know, from this month and last month against each other to try and figure out what was going on. So it was very difficult to do it. And it just caught my imagination at the time. I thought, wow, this is fascinating. So I started from that point, um, playing around with software all on my own time actually, but I, they lent me a computer. So I went away and did things and um, worked with people in paper industry and power industry. And it just sort of got started from there. But it really, you know, if they had not sent me down to talk to John Maury. Who knows whether I would have ever been involved with vibration analysis at all. But that's that's really where it started. And that's uh, the part that, you know, when you
1: get to meet somebody like that, that can teach you the hands-on piece, right, of how this stuff actually work. My experience with it was, you know, I'm out there working as a tradesperson, and, you know, when it came to compressors, and conveyors, and things like that, and installing them, uh, you, this is back in the day when you know the guys that carried sledgehammers used use a string, and the, the guys that were precise used a straight edge, right? right. and Then, yep. then the yep. vibration techs come in and we start doing that, and and they're telling us right from the get go using a straight edge that you know it's it's misaligned. And you're going, come on, right? So, all right, let's get out reverse dial indicators, and you know if we're talking a, a nitrogen compressor and and do the coupling that way. And then being able to show us the difference in, in the readout of, here's what good looks like, here's what you had before, right? Mm. And there's a huge difference in that. And when you see something like that as a tradesperson, and that's the piece that I often think is missing with, with companies when they do this, is to say, Get, take those hands-on people and show them the difference, right? I never learned what all those little lines look like, right? I always tell people, it's a caterpillar. Right. that's what it looks like to me um, and then when I got into RCM and started understanding failure modes and how to you know eliminate failure modes and understand that aspect of it and tie this piece together I still look back and go I probably should have learned the details of that vibration analysis and thermography and all those other tools like I said I know where they apply um, and I leave it to the experts to tell me all right this is what's good this is what's bad. So going back and looking over your career and maybe not even before you got into your career, when were you first recognized as a leader?
2: Well, so it might seem strange to me coming on this leadership connection with what I'm about to say. You know, leadership for me, you know, if we talk about what I believe leadership really means, there's a lot of positive qualities that a person should have. So I feel uncomfortable saying that I'm a leader because it right. means I have those positive qualities. But I guess I have always been wired a certain way to, well, I guess want I wanted to take the lead. I didn't, like, you know, I can be a team player, but I would much rather lead the team than just, be in the team i guess is the best way to put it so i you know whether i was playing a sport or whether i was or whatever you know i wanted to go out and do it and you know do it and fail and do it over or whatever it took but i was always just happier just taking the lead so, so you know it's just been that way forever really all right so that kind of leads to the next question which is one of those that are. It's down the road a
1: bit. Uh, Do you think leadership is a natural skill or is it a learned skill
2: based on your own
1: experience?
2: Well, so this is something I've given some thought. To me, now I'm an engineer so I always break things down. To me, there's three parts to being a, uh, a leader, three sort of levels. So I definitely believe that a person can be educated to be able to have leadership skills, you know, um, to make sure that you're looking after people in your team, making sure that you take responsibility for what you do, but you give other people opportunities, you um, protect them if something goes wrong, you listen to them, Um, you give credit to those people, you give, you, you have to, want what's best for the people in your team. You want to give them the opportunity to have ideas, to express their disagreements, if that's the case. Um, So I think that those things can be learned. It's slightly harder to then go to the next level, to have good communication skills, to sort of think longer term, to have really good ideas. I mean, it's, you know, just because as a leader, you want people to share their ideas. That doesn't always mean they're great ideas. So, you know, there's some skill in that and the ability to actually make a decision. There's a lot of people who will complain about things. a lot of people will say, oh, we should do this and we should do that. But, you know, I think a leader has to be able to say, right, well, okay, that's all great. Now I'm actually going to do something about it. The third level for me is, you know, I think you can learn it. But I think there has to be something within because you can't necessarily fake being a really good leader. And that is really genuinely believing in those traits of sort of being humble, um, being more confident and being able to make those decisions, Um, having genuine empathy for people, having respect in other people's ideas and opinions and so on, recognizing your own weaknesses. Uh, having integrity now is a big thing, being self-motivated, being dependable and loyal and being tactful and being willing to fail. And you know, it's, it's all about, I think I've heard other people say this, it's what you do when people aren't looking, you know, it's, but it's really believing it. You can, you can go a long way to acting as a good leader and that if everyone acted as a good leader, we would be in a much better position. You know, it's another level to actually have that as your core spirit or whatever you want to say. So, you know, um, that's that part is probably related to your upbringing. I, I don't know, you know. But I also think that once you start acting as a leader, you therefore get a lot of positive feedback from doing it. You know, you should enjoy seeing other people flourish. You should enjoy seeing other people get involved in projects or whatever it is um and and from that you realize hey this is this is really good i don't have to take credit for anything. I will make sure that you know people in the team get the credit, and I get the blame and you know when you sort of aren't scared of failure, when you aren't scared of of taking responsibility, then I think maybe those traits become second nature anyway it's a long answer to a short question but <laughs> um, but certainly understanding what the difference is is the first step and if you can then always be able you know say to yourself well basically is this what a leader would do you know um you know for positive or negative would a leader act in that way how would a leader make this decision and if you can always you understand what a leader would do and then you do it well then you you gain those leadership skills well, I can tell you, I'm sitting
1: here smiling, listening to your answer because I, I can tell you that that is what floats my boat is uh, going out and doing the training and then the mentoring and, and seeing somebody else take on what you taught them and have success with it, right? And have their careers flourish as a result of that, right? That's one Absolutely. of the, that's what that, that's what makes me get up and, and continue to go out and do it. Um, and if I could add one other thing to the qualities that you said, uh, because I remember early on getting into this, a lot of people that, that I worked with in the past saying, are you crazy? This is never going to work. Right. So mm. the, yeah. having this, this the thick skin to be able to say, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, I'm not going to listen to because I have the confidence to go out and uh, make this work. And when you're confident With the things that you do and the methods that you use, right? uh, You can't help but convey that to other people, right? So yeah,
2: absolutely. uh,
1: That is one of the things that uh, I know about you. That uh, you know, you made this transition from strictly the vibration business and going out and and applying that, and then teaching that, and then getting into the whole reliability aspect. um, You know. The tools, the techniques, the measures—where uh, to apply yeah. those things—that um, type of thing is is a is a big leap in this industry to go from subject matter expert to saying I'm going to take on more because I want to learn more. Right? Uh,
2: when did that transition take place? Well, I you know it's hard to put an exact time and date on it. As I mentioned earlier, I got into vibration because I was frustrated that a lot of people were attending the courses that were available at the time. And they were largely listening to instructors saying, you know, this; these are the facts, you must remember those facts. And most people, well, I'm generalizing, of course, but didn't necessarily understand um, why it was so, they were just told it was so. And I thought, well, it's really hard to be successful in the field of vibration analysis unless you understand. You know, when you understand, you don't have to remember wall charts. You don't have to remember rules and things. You just say, okay, I, I, I understand what the machine is likely to do. I understand how the vibration patterns and things will change. But, you know, so I felt good about the training that we delivered in there, all the animations and things that made it more understandable the challenge then was that <clears throat> I felt like I was setting vibration analysts up for failure because there they were with this great ability to predict the failure. The trouble is they were predicting the same failures over and over and over. And they were right. saying, you know, well I'm detecting unbalance and misalignments and other problems yet nothing was being done about those problems. They're detecting, Bearing faults and gear faults and all sorts of things, and no one's really taking notice. You know, often they were providing recommendations, and you know, someone in the maintenance department would say, "Oh, send old Joe out and get him to have a listen to the machine. See if this vibration analyst knows what he's talking about." And he'd go out and listen, say, "No, it sounds fine to me." And so, you know, all the all the technology was for nothing. And then they would have a you know a planned outage. And they'd start tearing all this equipment apart and the vibration analysts are saying "Well, well steady steady like you're replacing components that don't need it and you know that when you do that when we start back up you're going to experience all these problems right you know infant mortality failure and all that but the, the, so the bottom line was you know it was one thing to have this little pocket of excellence in the vibration group but unless everyone really understood, at the very least, the power of condition monitoring and condition-based maintenance, but unless everyone is pulling together, the plant will never be, well, the plant can be more reliable because you see problems coming, but the equipment will never be more reliable. You know, The equipment's just gonna keep failing because you keep doing the same, uh, well, the same mistakes. So that's where I thought, okay, I wanted to turn my focus from everything that I'd sort of learned to that point and there are you know great people out there who are just willing to share their knowledge and it's again where I've been very lucky because I've dealt with people in so many countries coming from so many industries You know from climates where it's super hot to super cold to dealing with dirty mining industries to you know clean pharmaceutical companies to you know, you name it. And so I felt like I could bring together the what I thought was the, the true big picture of achieving reliability. And it's beyond the maintenance department, it's it's certainly beyond the condition monitoring group. Yeah, you know, it needs to be a new way of thinking. Um, it needs to bring all the different components together, whether it's you know, planning and scheduling and RCM to set up the plan in the first place and you know, all, all the other pieces. And so that's where I thought, and again, this is just a case, you know, you are talking about confidence before. There's certainly, um, well, where's, there's a line between confidence, confidence and uh, ignorance maybe. Anyway, so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm pushing forward and I'm just gonna keep asking questions. Keep finding where programs are failing. And keep finding those instances where programs have had success. And if I can, basically, provide warning signs where all the roadblocks are, and share all the, the the success stories. You know, like what did people do differently to have success, ranging all the way from the initial sort of business review and the justification of the whole thing. You know, having developing the right culture, making sure people behaviors, leaders, all the way through to all the the technical things that need to happen. So again, that was 2008, I don't know, something like that. It was around 2010 when I really formulized or formulated the original roadmap to reliability as I like to call it with all the pretty diagrams and things and it's really evolved from there. But you know, as I say, it's, it's, i've only been able to do it because I have met lots of people over the years um, who have been willing to share their story, and you know if you just keep asking questions and people don't get too sick of you then yeah, you can learn from that and I'm in the very fortunate position of being able to share what i've learned, so that 's what's fun for me and you know like i 'm talking too much, I know, but that's <laughs> really the reward of all of this when people then come back to you and say either that they've been much more successful as vibration analysts or whatever, but that they've, they're having success on the reliability front and they feel more confident. They know, they understand what's going on. They're being recognized for their skills and knowledge. So, you know, that's at the end of the day, what's really rewarding.
1: Well, I have one other thing that I really w- would like to kind of close with, and that is, uh, you know, you've talked about this, that, that transition. Um, you then went and took it a step further, which is one that, uh, you know, when it came down to who should we talk to in terms of leaders, your name comes up on this list is you have the certification programs. And one thing that i really, once I saw what you were doing, uh, I went, wow, that's, there is another step, uh, back 1999, when I leave Kodak and I start doing this, uh, I wanted to make sure that I differentiated myself from other guys that were out there doing RCM. And the way that I did that was to say, okay, I can either come in and I can do RCMs at your company, right, or I can train your people. But if I train your people, it's not going to be I'm going to come in for a week or two weeks and then they're going to take a test and I'm going to leave them with a software program and they're on their own. I wanted to make sure that they could actually use and do what they were taught. So there's a mentoring piece to that. Right. And through that mentoring is where the certification came from. So I had people say when they were done, all right, if I got certification, no, you simply pass the test. Right. And that's that's a good step in the right direction, but I want to see that you actually can apply these things. Right. And that not only do you apply it, but you get a return on investment for what you did. Right. So you go out, you pick an asset, you do a uh, RCM analysis, you implement it, and when you go and do those tasks, it improves the reliability to a point where you get a return on investment for those things. What you're doing now with your certification programs is right along that line to say, look, we're not just going to have you take a test. That's an important piece of this, the learning of it, being able to speak that language. I want you to go out and use it, right? And I want you to be able to show that you've done something with this, that you've made changes, that you've changed the culture, that you've improved reliability. Could you speak a little bit about that? What motivated you to go in that direction? Because it's something that, that I think sets what you're doing above anybody else that's out there right now.
2: Well, um, thanks for that. Thank you very much. Um, firstly, I, I want to make sure people don't feel like I'm trying to sell something. And I also have to be tactful in what I say because If I say something good about mine, people can take it as a negative against something else that that exists out there. There were a few things that motivated us to establish the ARP certification. One was that, and I guess it's part of the ISO, the International Standards Organization, way of handling certification. And that is the idea that at one extreme, if you just take a test, it identifies that you can answer the majority of, you know, the hundred questions correctly, not all of them, the majority of them, but but a person who's going to be effective in condition monitoring, reliability, maintenance, and so on, um, needs to obviously know a lot more, but you can only test them on certain things and you can only ask them certain sorts of questions because they're usually multiple choice questions. So the ISO way is to ensure that there's training associated with certification, uh, training that anyone can deliver, um, anyone can deliver, but, but it, it ensures that people are actually trained and part of the challenge, you know, and it's getting worse every year. Um, people don't want to invest in, in training. There has to be some measurable outcome. So by having certification associated with training, it also means that managers are far more likely to educate people, and that education to me is really important. So that's part of it. Part of it also from an ISO point of view is that you can't just say, well, I'm, I'm a bright bunny. I will take the test and pass it and therefore I'm certified. You have to have uh, verified experience. So part of the biggest hassle in what we do is verifying people's experience. But the, you know, there's two levels of experience. There's the experience where someone can prove or whatever word you want to use that they've had the, you know, three years of experience or whatever the requirement is. Um, um, but then there's sort of going a, a step above that to say, okay, um, you've been in a role for a certain period of time, but now let's also check, you know, have you been able to, implement these practices that we've talked about effectively you know have you performed root cause analysis have you changed the culture have you done this have you done that so that's the whole picture of ARP the other thing about ARP too is um, recognizing that again to us there's just a, a difference between someone who is aware of all these concepts and technologies and philosophies and so on. There's the person who needs to really, really understand the engineering and the technical side so that they can get involved with RCM and understand planning and scheduling, understand condition monitoring, and precision maintenance and all those things. But then there's the sort of the leadership side of, of well being a leader, but being able to implement the program, being able to develop a business case, you know, change the culture. So we also divided it up. But I'm with you one hundred percent that um well, it needs to be meaningful. It you know, someone should be able to say, Well, I'm certified and it it means something. It's not purely a commercial programme. It's not purely, you know, I've gathered enough facts that I can pass a test. It's you know there needs to be something behind so people can proudly say i am certified a certain way and anyway so i definitely agree with you on that point
1: all right well jason um thanks for uh tuning in with us today and being part of this i've been looking forward to it for for quite some time we've had you on the calendar here for a bit now
2: and uh it's good to hear your voice once again well thanks doug i really enjoyed um, being part of it. I think this series is fantastic. It gives a lot of people an opportunity to learn and, and see life from a different perspective. And I hope this one's been helpful for people as well. All right. And so
1: to close things out, I always like for people to to know, you know, if they had a question for Jason
2: or a comment, what, what's the best way to get in touch with you? The best way by far is email Jason at mobiusinstitute.com and it's M for Mary O, B for Barry, I-U-S, because lots of people spell Mobius in very creative ways. But, and look, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, um, I just prefer emails anyway, it's just, I see them, I get them, I can respond. But hey, I'm on LinkedIn as well. And if you wanna be friends on LinkedIn, you know, go right ahead, that, that's great too. And when I share things, you'll see them. Um, but yeah, email is a good way, and I get these sorts of emails all the time. I'm really happy to, answer you know, help people with questions they might have or challenges or whatever. You know, it's it's a fun part of all of this. All right. Well, it's been great talking to you. This has
1: been Doug Plucknett with the Leadership Connection. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Leadership Connection. We will see you back for another episode next week. In between, we hope to see you in the Mobius Connect community where you can meet Doug and share with other industry professionals at mobiusconnect.com. We'll see you there.